You're listening to WP Radio. I'm your host, Terry Doherty. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be putting out one episode per day of our live interviews from the OIAA Claims Conference that was held in downtown Toronto. We had such a fun time there, meeting everybody and interviewing our guests. These were all smaller interviews, so we're going to do our advertisement first and then have the entire interview all in one chunk. This episode is brought to you by Osgood Professional Development. Osgood's upcoming program, Successful Advocacy in Insurance Mediations, will be held on February 21st and 22nd in downtown Toronto. Chaired by Frank Gomberg and Paul Torrey, leading a faculty of over 20 distinguished counsel and mediators, it will provide you with tools that will improve every mediation you appear on. Join in person or by live webcast and learn more at osgoodpd.ca forward slash insurance. This episode is with Mazen Habash of Origin and Cause. Now please enjoy. It's uh, Terry Doherty and we're live at WP Radio here at uh, the OIAA Claims Conference. And I'd just like to welcome Mazen Habash, president of Origin and Cause. Mazen, thank you very much for coming on WP Radio today. Terry, thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Um, Mazum, um, I know you quite well, but lots of people, you know, may not know you and what your company does. Can you give me a little bit of background of Origin and Cause, how long you've been in business and, and what you guys do and offer? Yes. So uh, Origin and Cause started in 1991. We are a forensic engineering and fire investigation uh, consulting firm. We have offices across uh, Canada. Uh, we typically have engineers as well as fire investigators that do the kind of invest- investigations that our client needs. And um, we've been growing since 1991, and uh, it's been a great ride so far. So, uh, Mazam, what does Origin and Cause do? I know you do fire investigation, but maybe you can tell everyone out there what, what your full spectrum of uh, things you do. Well, the majority of the work we do is, is fire investigations and explosions, but... Um, we also do electrical failure analysis. We also have uh, mechanical engineers that do vehicle fires, mechanical inspections. We have metallurgical and material engineers as well, uh, structural engineers. So we, we run the full gamut of the engineering services. Any kinds of failures that there exists, we have the expertise to be able to ascertain the cause of these failures. Um. And do you do this in-house, or do you uh, do it on-site, or is there a combination? Well, the majority of the work we do, of course, is we have to go on-site, because one of the important things is to see the evidence that can tell us what caused the incident or the failure while it is on-site. And there is many instances where once we've seen it on-site, we document it with photographs, and once it's been documented, then the evidence may be removed, taken back to our laboratory, and at that point, a forensic uh, examination is conducted in our laboratory. And you use micrometers and you go under, you know, all sorts of different things to, to work on that, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, in our lab, we have uh, different kind of equipment. We do a lot of non-destructive testing. So we have x-ray equipment. We have different microscopes, uh, different kinds of tools used by the various engineers to identify the cause of a failure. Well, let's talk about testing. There's destructive and non-destructive. For those people that don't know, maybe you can explain what the difference is between the two. Yes, of course. So uh, an example of a non-destructive test would be x-rays. So if you have a piece of evidence and you take an x-ray of that piece of evidence and then you can actually look at the radiograph 
and identify failures in the radiograph without taking the device apart, that's non-destructive. Uh, where destructive examinations take place is you're actually taking the evidence apart and you're photographing it, you're documented as you systematically take it apart, but at that point it is destructive and there are times when you want to do a non-destructive examination and there's a time for a destructive examination. So in your destructive testing, do you uh, photograph it in the stages of taking it apart? It's just not all together and then all apart. Yes, so it's, a, it's almost like an archaeological dig. So you're, you're systematically photographing and documenting as you take the device apart, uh, looking for evidence of failure or malfunction. And do, does that, is that hold up as a test in court? Is that, is that the way it's meant to be done? Is there certain standards? Yeah, of course. There, there is ASTM standards that we have to follow in the methodology of how we conduct a destructive examination. Uh, as an example, uh, before you do a non-destructive examination, you have to notify interested parties. Because, of course, the concept is you want all interested parties who have a vested interest in the claim, for example, to be present during a destructive examination. So the other day I was involved in a destructive examination where there was over 10 experts all looking at the same piece of evidence as it is taken apart, everyone documenting that piece of evidence in a systematic scientific way. And does everyone get an opportunity to be in the room while it's happening or can it be done you know, over video? Is that, a, is that something that can be feasibly done? So if they have an expert in a different province now? Yes. I mean. It's done mostly in the U.S. where there is video attendance by experts. Um, in Canada, we don't see that as often quite yet. Most people want to attend in person to be there, to be able to touch, to look, to um, identify the various failure points of an examination. Do we tend to then follow the American version of things? So we'll get to that where we're actually videoing the destruction and the testing. Will that soon be the, the new standard then, do you think? Yeah, you know, Terry, you make a good point. I think generally we are behind the U.S. in, in those kinds of things by maybe about uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, but generally, I feel that the trends that we see in the U.S. now, we will start to follow quite, uh, quite soon. So it's a trickle-down effect, really. It is a trickle-down effect, and it's, it's basically driven by litigation. It's typically driven by lawyers. Um, they're, they have asked, for example, that we videotape the destructive examination, but I think it's going to be shortly that there is live video where someone can be sitting across the country watching the destructive examination and asking for certain things to be done while they're sitting, let's say, in Edmonton at their desk. So it would allow the opportunity for an adjuster, say, to sit in on the destructive testing? Absolutely. Well, adjusters, other experts, lawyers, uh, representatives of manufacturers, even as far as being in the Far East and China, say. Okay, so then they don't even have to send somebody there. They can have their expert be in their office or in their conference room in China or, what, you know, in some other country and then put their input about asking questions or having you turn the device over so you can see it from all views? Absolutely. I mean, the whole point is they would be virtually there. They would be present in a virtual sense. Now, have you guys been involved in any of that yet? Has that been anything that you've been involved? We've, we've been involved in videotaping um, examinations, but not in a sense where we've actually had live video footage. Um, and there are challenges, of course, to it. The challenges is that you, know, you may have a lot of people involved, and if there is many um, questions that are being asked during the examination, of course, 
that kind of prolongs the examination. So whereas without this live video footage, an examination may take two, three hours, with other people having input being virtually present, the examination, of course, is going to maybe take two or three times as long. Sure, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow it down from the timing aspect, but allow more people to be present for that actual examination. Oh, absolutely. It allows more people to be present, and I think it allows the process to uh, evolve a lot quicker because, of course, everyone that's interested has had the opportunity to watch the examination take place. Oh, that's great. Um, so l let's talk about uh, on-site investigation. So when you get to a fire scene, um, you follow, I'm sure, the NFPA regulations and how you have to determine fire causation, correct? Yes, absolutely. I, so you mentioned the NFPA. It's a, there's a document called the NFPA 921. It is a guide for fire and explosion investigations. And the, the guide is, is, is an excellent document that we can rely upon to do a systematic examination of a fire scene in a scientific way. And, and, and in doing so, um, when you do this examination in a systematic approach, does that remove bias or what, what's, the, what's the reasoning behind that? Is that just to set the standard for everybody to do it in, in a certain way to, to make sure everybody's following the same rules or make sure, like, why, why do we use 9 F, NFPA 921? So, of course, NFPA 921 sets the general guidelines for how to conduct an investigation. Again, it's, you know, I said it earlier, it's a scientific, systematic way. And the, the, the part of it is that if everyone follows NFPA 921, you can be sure that the actual investigation was conducted correctly. doesn't mean that everyone, every expert is going to agree that all the opinions are going to come out to be the same. However, we can be sure that if you follow the guide, then you cannot be criticized for not doing a proper investigation. Excellent, okay. And that guide's available to anyone, right? You can buy it in a store, correct? Absolutely, you can download it on, on the NFPA website, you can buy it at a store. Um, a lot of uh, fire services, for example, have it in their library. So it's, it's, it's clearly available for anyone to use. And, and that being said, there is updates to it as well, is there not? So generally, the NFPA 921 is updated every three years. Um, the, the good thing about the NFPA 921 is that it is written by consensus by a committee. So it's not written by one individual, it's a committee of several people that are um, uh, basically there to propagate the concepts of the scientific method. Um, and there is different people over the years that have contributed as committee members and so the document is has been improved over the years, and there is a different permutation of what the document is. So it's a living, breathing document. It's, it's always changing. It's certainly a living, breathing document. And, um, and I know I've, I've seen the document because I actually have a copy of NFPA 921 uh, from what I do in my job, but uh, it, it, it's pretty easy to read as well, right? It's not, it's, it's easy to understand. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great document. It's uh, written well. It's written by people who are actually doing the investigations. Um, there are many contributors, like I said, so you've got different ideas that go into this document. Uh, as an example, the way it's developed is that someone comes up with an idea to include in the document. It may take a year or two for that idea to go through the process of being vetted and approved by not only the committee itself, but the general public. Uh, in other words, if, 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 if there is an idea that's gonna be put forth for the book, for the document, anyone that is in the business or in the industry 
has an opportunity to put their input on that particular issue. Excellent. Um, now, let's talk about you and the types of claims that you handle generally. Um, so what would be the most types of claims that you would see on a regular basis yourself, Mazam? So uh, my background is mostly on the electrical side of things, so I investigate a lot of electrical fires. Um, I do a lot of product liability and subrogation claims. So in other words, products that have failed and caused a fire, whether it's a refrigerator, a coffee maker, a heat recovery unit. I also get involved in a lot of um, um, farm kind of claims. In other words, let's say there is a, a barn with uh, pigs and the ventilation system within the barn stopped functioning and you've got a livestock loss. So I would go in there and try and establish why the ventilation system stopped working. I might even look at the alarm system in the barn and why it didn't trigger to alert the farmer that there is an incident in their barn. And are we seeing a lot more fires with, uh, you know, I hate to say it, Samsung products and those kind of things? Are we, are we seeing more and more fires lately? Uh, in terms of cell phone devices? Yeah, that, those kind of things, uh, you know, electronics? Interesting, interestingly, I think we're seeing a lot of fires related to um, certain batteries and battery packs. Uh, I wouldn't say that they're specifically with cell phones. I, we see them more with laptops. We see them more with um, rechargeable uh, cordless power tools. That, Scooters that type of thing. and those little... Yes. So we like power drills, that type of thing. But cell phones, we have not come across too many of them. So we, And we're just talking about the lithium-ion The lithium-ion batteries, yes. And uh, is, is there a problem with that battery? Or do, do you think there's an issue with the battery itself? Or is it just how it's being packaged? Like, what, what's the problem? Well, I, I, th I think part of the problem is that the lithium-ion battery has a high-density energy. Um, and because of manufacturing defects that have existed, when they fail, they fail catastrophically. I mean, they fail to the extent where they will actually explode or ignite. I mean, the typical word we hear is that these things explode. I think generally it's just that they actually uh, eject some of the material from within the battery and there is a lot of fire going on in that same area. Of course, there's lots of combustibles generally around those battery packs that then propagate the fire to other areas. Okay. Um, and you're doing that, but you're also doing commercial fires and do you do automobile fires still? Yeah, so not myself, but there are, we have three vehicle uh, fire experts in, at Origin and Cause. They get involved in, you know, small passenger vehicles. They get involved in feller bunchers and mining equipment. Anything that moves. In what bunchers? Mining equipment, no. feller bunchers. Which so it's, it's, it's basically forestry equipment. Oh, okay. So all kinds of vehicles, as long as they move and they can catch fire, our vehicle team can investigate and determine the origin and the cause of the fire. So you have uh, the company structured in such a way, so you have a vehicle team, you have a... Yeah, so we, 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 we structure it so that we've got a, a vehicle fire investigation team, the mechanical group. We also have a metallurgical and materials uh, group that investigates uh, water losses, um, things like sprinkler head uh, letting go, causing a flood. We also have an electrical group that do electric shock incidents, electrocutions. Uh, we have a chemical engineer that does a lot of chemical claims, which is quite interesting at times. Um, and of course, generally, the people who do the investigation, such as fires and explosions. So tell me about the uh, chemical claims then. Do you have any uh, little... So we, we had the one incident where um, someone had uh, suggested that they had a, uh, a reaction to a quite well-known product of aftershave. And so 
we needed to identify whether that product can cause the reaction to an individual's face. But as it turns out that there was um, the actual product itself had been tampered with and there was more in the actual bottle of this aftershave than just the aftershave. So what did, did you determine that was done aftermarket? It was somebody had tampered with it? Is that what you were asked to do or were you just asked to deal with the actual chemical we were, compound? We were just asked to identify what the chemical compound is. When that uh, intervention was or when the tampering occurred, we weren't involved in that. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Um, and, and was that done for the insurance industry or was that done for an outside, just a, an interested party? No, it was done for the insurance industry. I mean, it was a claim filed by the uh, plaintiffs or by the claimant against the manufacturer of the uh, actual uh, aftershave product. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. Now, let's, let's talk about some other stuff then. Do you do only work for the insurance industry or do you do stuff outside of the insurance industry? Yeah, you know what? The majority of the work is through the insurance industry, but we certainly do a lot of work for uh, the legal industry. We do a lot of work for manufacturers. Uh, we've been retained by the provincial government, by the federal government, by municipal governments. So we have a wide range or array of uh, clients and client sectors, uh, but I would say that probably 60% of it is insurance related. Okay, and is it always the insurance company hiring you or do you do work on the plaintiff side as well? So if, if a plaintiff solicitor hired you and you weren't already involved, you, would you take that matter on? Yeah, you know, it's, that's an interesting question because we're asked quite often, do we work mostly for the defense or the plaintiff side of uh, litigation? And uh, my response is always that we work for both. And it's, it's interesting because when I talk to colleagues from the U.S., other experts, um, they find that surprising because in the U.S., it is typical that you are either a defense expert or a plaintiff's expert. In Canada, because of uh, the perceived conflict, I think judges in Canada prefer to see experts at work for both sides because that shows that there is less bias in whether you work for the defense or the plaintiffs. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean... Uh if you can say I've done work for both the plaintiff and defense, I mean, what's the bias then, right? You've done, you know, you're not just, you're not a hired gun per se. Exactly. I think it shows you that you've got a little more credibility that way. For sure. Um, is there anything you'd like to else to tell us about Origin Cause that, you know, may or may not have asked you today? Well, like I said, it's, uh, I've been with the company since 1991. I started off as a, uh, as a young engineer. Um, I can say that it's been a great ride over the last 26 something years. We continue to grow to serve our clients in the best way that we can. We, uh, we love the fact that we are growing to become a national firm. Um, again, most of our clients are national insurance clients, and we would love to be able to serve them well across the, the country. And is there, um, is there one particular claim that you, you know, without telling any of the names or anything, that you've really enjoyed working on? Anything interesting that just comes to mind? I mean, because people always love a good story. So do you have something that you can think about? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I've had many interesting claims, of course. Um, you know, th some of the ones that surprisingly are more interesting are the ones that are the farm kind of claims, where you actually get to see how farmers operate their, their, their farms, you know, their business, there's different things that you see. Um, getting involved in crop losses, for example, I find very interesting. Getting involved in, you know, a pig barn where you've had 5,000 pigs die because of uh, asphyxiation. You know, those kinds of are, are interesting. I don't do them very often, so when I do do them, it kind of uh, invigorates me in terms of something that's interesting to do. And, and again, is there a protocol or a step-by-step -step or methodological 
um, version of like how you would do that? Like, yeah, I, I think you know whether it's a fire or whether it's investigating a farm loss or an electric shock or an electrocution. I mean, you have to follow a, a non-biased, systematic, scientific way of identifying effectively what happened. And with these kinds of farm cases, are they typically do they? Excuse me. Um, not not so much a fire, but is there usually an area where you can pinpoint to start off from and work out from and those kind of things? Is it usually like a ventilation, like uh, fans or something that's shut down? Yeah, absolutely. So so typically what happens is you either have a, a fan shut down um, in a room where there is a pen for pigs or you have the ventilation computer, the ventilation controls that have shut down. There are other reasons. You have a total power interruption to the farm property. Uh, if your backup generator doesn't work or you don't have one, then as long as the farmer doesn't respond to the barn quick enough to start allowing the ventilation to, to rework or to open some of the windows in the barn, then unfortunately you're going to have a crop loss or a livestock loss. Any, any thoughts of maybe putting something, you know, you being an engineer, you put that to your head that when that system shut down, it automatically operates to open the venting or windows. Is that, you know, something that's feasible? Well, of course, you know, it's a perfect storm. So yes, there's always in every barn, there are uh, features that should work. Some of them are alarm systems that should trigger when, of course, there's no ventilation where the temperature goes up. Um, there are backups, so if a fan doesn't work, the second fan should work. But unfortunately, when you have the perfect storm is when you end up having a claim. And 5,000 dead pigs. And 5,000 dead pigs. That's a lot of bacon. All right. Um, anything else that we should, we should know about origin and cause? Uh, no, I think that's, that's it. Well, thank you very much for being on WP Radio today. I know it was short notice, and I appreciate your time, and it's always good to speak with you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk, and uh, it's been a great show so far. Thank you very much. Thanks, Terry. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our live series on WP Radio. We'll have another episode or installment for you later in the week. Please check in with us, and if you have any questions, please email me at terry at oiaa.com. And we'll talk with you soon. Are you an insurance adjuster actively adjusting claims? If so, we want you. The OIAA is a professional organization currently consisting of 1,800 claims professionals with its main focus on education, networking, and knowledge. We promote and maintain a high standard of ethics among insurance claims professionals. We work together with government departments and officials, governing bodies, members of other organizations, insurance companies, associations and fraternities, as well as the general public in matters connected with the business of insurance and insurance claims. We recognize the value of networking for education, advocacy, advancing professional standards, and offering mutual support. We provide networking, professional development, inside industry news, and support to insurance adjusters across Ontario. By joining our network of active and associate members, you receive a direct introduction to other members, our Without Prejudice magazine delivered to your door, 
discounts for all social and professional development events, knowledge from mixing with seasoned, experienced adjusters and with new up-and-coming professionals, and satisfaction knowing that you are an active participant in shaping claims adjustment and risk management services in Ontario. Most compelling of all is the price. Just for $50 a year plus HST, the value far outweighs the fee. Can you afford not to join us? Please visit our website to become a member and to review our calendar of events at www.oiaa.com.